my name is Abby, and I'm a volunteer here at Recovery Radio. If you want to feel good about yourself today, I have a suggestion that will help you. Just go to www.recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. Then, give an amount that makes you feel good. You'll be amazed by your own awesomeness all day. My name is Jane, and I'm an alcoholic. And um, let me let me start by thanking Michelle. For, first of all, for those kind words that I promise I took straight to my heart because I needed them right now. But but also for everything that you've done to make this weekend so enjoyable for me. You certainly are the hostess with the mostest, and um, I've enjoyed every second. And that was a really weird thing that happened. I mean, it was just one of those witchy woman moments. But I also um, really wanted to thank the um, the committee and the council, and I'll tell you, I just love that, Chris. You guys are so lucky to have him in this area. You know, that Chris Matthews is just, I don't know, I just want to cry because the, the hospitality that you've extended to me is just mind-blowing. And the caring, and, you know, we actually met at the International. He he wanted to, you know, his, in his excitement, he wanted to meet us all before coming here you know, this weekend. So we got to hook up there and I met his beautiful wife, Vicki, and we just, you know, hit it off automatically. But um, but I do know the work that goes into planning these. So I want to, again, thank the committee and the council. It's been an awesome weekend. Um, and what an honor. Uh, I, you know, I, I stand before you as a humble servant of Alcoholics Anonymous commissioned here today to share my experience, strength and hope. So, my name's Jane. I'm an alcoholic, if I haven't said that. Did I? <laughs> and, um, and I firmly believe, like, that, uh, you know, I still get nervous when I have to do this, but I really feel like peace begins with a smile, and I've received so many smiles this weekend that I really do feel peace right now. I feel at home. And, um, and it's no mistake that um, it's Sunday morning, so I... I always like to start out my talk by um, by expressing uh, my gratitude for God's gift of grace. And I feel it. I mean, it is right here. Grace is one of those really cool things. It's like this um, undercurrent of life that offers us magical things like illumination, forgiveness, love, peace. And all we really have to do is tap into it. You know, it's nothing, we don't have to earn it, it's just there for us, for the taking. So it's kind of like a light bulb, just kind of screw into it. So um, I, I feel it right now, um, I hope that you feel it, and I just wanted to take a moment to invite it into our hearts and realize that um, there, we're always surrounded by that sweet assurance of grace. You know, um, it's the inner realization that we're already one with God. We always have been, we always will be. And always, I always found this to be so, um, so protective is that like wherever the will of God takes me, the grace of God will always protect me. And, um, and I'm remembering that right now as I stand before you this morning. So I thought, um, also so that we could, um, invite grace in, I thought it would be nice to close our eyes and maybe together, um, recite the third step prayer. God, I offer myself to thee, to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, so that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. You know, um... I also wanted to thank the, my fellow speakers this weekend, George and Pauline from our fellow programs, Narcotics Anonymous and Al-Anon. I am in love with those programs. I'm in love with the people in those programs, and I don't know what we as alcoholics would do without those programs. So I wanted to give, you know, acknowledge those programs. And again, you know, I hate when there's like some separation or whatever. It's like, hey, man, we're all in recovery. Let's all build each other up and, you know, and, and respect what each other does. So, so good. And, 
And also, I, this isn't the first time in my journey that I've um, encountered the wonderful men, <coughs> Kent and Jimmy. And um, every time I hear their stories, I hear something new. And that's the beauty of, um, of stories. We're all evolving human beings. So every time we tell our story, we tell it a little differently, depending on what's going on in our lives. Speaking of which, um, John and Jerry back there doing the um, taping, I, I always want to give them a shout out because that is a vocation, you know, and what better gift is there to give somebody who's sick and struggling or somebody who's got years of sobriety who might need a little, you know, kick in the pants than to give them somebody's story. And I do that a lot. And I also am one of those alcoholics that lost my license forever. So when I can't get to a meeting, I love um, that I can just pop a tape and pop, well, a tape, a CD. And um, so uh, go ahead and, and um, give them, you know, the, uh, a hand because what they do is it helps so many people. And, I mean, it's really wild because I don't consider myself a speaker or anything, but, like, my CD has made it over to England, and I got invited to share my story at Winchester two years ago in Winchester Cathedral. How does that happen? You know, I mean, so it just shows, like, you know, it's, who knows what, who you might help by giving them the gift of somebody's story, the precious gift of somebody's story. So I'll start by saying, you know, that, that I love some of the counterintuitive wisdoms that exist in these 12-step programs. You know, the ones like you have to die in order to live, you have to surrender in order to win, you have to suffer in order to get well, and you have to give it away to keep it. So that's really why I'm here today is to give it away and to share my message in the hope that somebody will um, need to hear what I have to say. Um, our dark pasts sometimes are our greatest possessions, you know, and um, I'm so grateful that my heart and my soul are still open and um, not shut down because of some of the things that have happened to me. And as I look around at this group this morning, and it happened to me several times throughout the weekend so far, I, when I look at a crowd this size, I think, you know, probably every single one of us should be dead. You know, what a miracle that we're here. And, you know, I happen to love butterflies, so this might sound kind of corny, but, you know, what good are the wings of a beautiful butterfly if they stay grounded in self-contempt and self-loathing? You know, they're, they're beautiful when we get up and we fly. And you know what? I got to give everyone here a, a, a kudos for making it this morning because we all decided to flap our beautiful wings and make it to this convention to get, you know, the nurturance that we need in order to continue to grow. And um, so anyway, I am so happy again to be here. One of the miracles of the program that God speaks to us all um, a little differently. And um, I think that God expects us to share our stories. So the, the book even says one of the greatest miracles of the program is that every day somewhere in this world, one alcoholic is sharing their story with another alcoholic, sharing their experience, their strength, and their hope. You know, um, God promises, all, promises us all a safe landing, but it's not always necessarily an easy passage. And um, I am here to just celebrate and to share about my enthusiasm for this precious, life-saving, life-sustaining, life-giving gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. Talk about changing lives. My life has been transformed and changed. And um, the woman that you see up here today is not the woman prior to September 24th, 1996. I can assure you of that. Um, my home group is 909 Central in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, and um, I am so grateful to this, the sponsors that I've had throughout the years to my family who loved me um, through everything and stuck by me. Well, they didn't stick by me the whole time, Pauline. Uh, you know, they they took the uh, the tough love thing for quite a while, but now they're in my lives and things are better than ever. For my friends in and outside of the program, but most of all for my faith and my wonderful, mysterious God that I believe in that's gotten me through everything. 
Um, I'll start my story with the date of my birth, November 20th, 1962. I was born in Caldwell, New Jersey, um, and I'm one of five kids, and um, the blood that courses through my veins is 100% Irish, and I think that automatically predisposes me to the disease of alcoholism. Um, and I was born into, a, um, again, another Catholic I think we've all, you know, every one of us up here has a story about Catholics this weekend, but I was born into a very devoutly Catholic family. Um, my mom was a lot like George's mom, um, goes, and, and Jimmy's mom, you know, go, went to Mass every day, still goes. Um, and um, I had the most wonderful upbringing. It's amazing the spectrum of, again, stories that you hear. You know, some people have had really tragic, sad childhoods, grew, grew up like, you know, in a really tough situation. Then we have everything in the middle, and then we have the people like me who had everything. It was almost like life was handed to me on a silver platter, and I had a silver spoon in my mouth. And... Um, and I'm the second oldest, the oldest girl, of, again, of five kids. And um, it, it was a great childhood. I went to um, Catholic elementary school. And I'll, I'll say from the very beginning that I'm one of those Catholics that loves being Catholic. And, and some of the greatest influences in my life has been the nuns and the priests. I just happen to have lucked out. I have the most wonderful nuns growing up and um, and priests, too. And that was not only growing up, but that's in recovery as well. Um, but I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, I, I loved God. I, um, I, I considered my God to be loving, but he always seemed to keep me on the um, straight and narrow, though, until I got to high school. And um, high school, I went to an all-girl Catholic high school. I graduated in 81, and there were only 81 girls in my class. And um, I'm, I'll just mention it because it's in my heart today, again, because of the sadness that this family's experiencing. But Whitney Houston was one of my close friends in high school. And um, when I think about both of us, you know, before the innocence ended, how we were, we were just like your typical, fun-loving, all-American high school girls. You know, Whitney was awesome. And just watching what happened to her and what the industry did to her, it just kind of reminds me of, like, the Judy Garland story. You know, but I have to tell you, in essence, she was one of the most wonderful people that I that I knew growing up. Um, and also, it was a really predominantly Irish and Italian um, uh, area that I grew up in. So, um, so I really didn't start to show my rebellion until I was in high school. And um, I guess the best way to do it was the, the I was rebelling against the whole way I was raised. Now, I was still good in high school. I shouldn't say that I was bad. I mean, I did, you know, I was mischievous, I should say. But um, but I was the all-American kid. You know, I was like, I remember I was in, on the choir, in the choir, on the track team, um, in the drama club. You know, I was on student council. And um, the first time that I drank, I was 14, and I went to the movies with my cousin, and she was 18 with a couple of her girlfriends. And um, it was the original Star Wars. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the chair and they kept dumping like rum into my into my movie theater Coke. And let me tell you, I just remember sitting there going, "Woo!" I mean, we had never seen anything like that before on the big screen. Like, man, I was flying intergalactically all over the place with like Han Solo right next to me and. I mean, it was it was incredible. I felt like I was on a roller coaster. And um, I think how how wonderfully symbolic it is, because really that first drink took me right out of this world, put me on a whole different plane. You know, I mean, it was it was awesome until, of course, the ride home where I threw up all over my you know, my cousin's friend's car. And I remember I was so sick and I was like, man, I am never doing that again. And um, and I really didn't. I mean, there was one other time I remember in high school. It was a Halloween, and I smoked pot. That was about it. And then um, and then I went to college. Now let me um, back up a little bit and tell you about my parents. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Her whole life to this day is family. You know, my mom and dad just celebrated 57 years of marriage in May. 
They have, they have the most beautiful marriage I've ever seen. And, um, you know, it just, they're, they're the most incredible people. I have to talk about my dad for a minute because I think it says a lot about how disciplined I was or how we were raised with such a sense of discipline. My dad was favored to be the first to break the four-minute mile. He was one of Villanova University's um, first, you know, really big milers. And um, he actually missed it by um, four point oh oh point oh one <laughs> otherwise he would have been the first to break the four minute mile ever and um so you can imagine this skinny little white kid from east orange new jersey being like the fastest man in the world and uh and that's my dad he was really just it was almost like being raised by a military dad he was you know the kind of the bring home the bacon father left all the lovey dovey stuff to my mom but uh, but he's a good man. He's um, one of the finest men. I he is the finest man I, I know. So um, so anyway, um, I went away to college and it was kind of like the Catholic schoolgirl that lived in a glass house getting let loose in the big city. I went to Manhattan College, which is in the Bronx. And um, and it was really my first true taste of freedom. And I went bonkers. And once again, it's a Catholic university. So most of my friends were Irish and Italian, and they went to the same kind of prep schools that I went to. And they were all going crazy. So I guess it was just the thing to do. And uh, and that's what happened. You know, I just uh, freshman freshman first semester from from September until December, I put on 25 pounds. And believe me, it was not the food. I love drinking beer. And, um, you know, and I remember I graduated second in my class in high school. And um, so I had aspirations of, you know, going to med school and being a doctor. Well, um, I also, uh, freshman year, it was actually sophomore year, I really started getting into outside issues. And, um, and I, uh, you know, started smoking a lot of pot in addition to drinking and I ended up uh, giving up my, you know, med school career to become an English major, creative writing and French, you know. And I kind of went down the little hippie trail for a little while. Now, this was New York City in the 80s, where it was, as the Eagles say, everything all the time. It was life in the fast lane. And, man, I was on the last stop of uh, the, the one train, so I had access to the biggest, baddest city in the world 24-7. And I tore up that city. And, um, again, it was back in the days of, you know, disco. And I was always more of a rock and roll, you know, person. But, you know, then the new wave thing came into and the punk rock. And, man, I was into it all. Um, but anyway, my um, I, I was blessed with a good brain, so somehow I was able to really jam during midterms and finals, and I and I did well. Um, then another outside issue, the one that you snort, um, entered into the picture too. And let me just tell you uh, first and foremost that I am a big believer in singleness of purpose. And believe me, alcohol was the love of my life, you know. And the way that I like to look at it is, you know, alcohol led me to do some crazy things, man. We all know what some of those crazy things are. Writing bad checks, stealing stuff, doing things that you never thought you would do, waking up with God knows who, you know, um, terrible, crazy things that we do under the influence of alcohol. Well, one of mine was drugs, too. I mean, it was the alcohol that led me to those. And really, the, the one drug, when I smoked it, kind of helped to enhance my drinking experience. And the other one made me drink harder and faster and longer and dance. And, blah, blah, blah. and um, so it was they were kind of like in conjunction with my with my alcohol. And so that's the way that I like to um, to explain that, because I think it would be a lie of omission if I didn't mention that stuff. And again, it was New York City in the 80s, and uh, man, it was everywhere. So, um, so anyway, uh, junior year, I decided, you know what, man, I am tired. I've got several years of French under my belt. I think I'm going to go spend junior year abroad. Plus, it was my first geographic change. So I did. I, um, I went to Nantes, France. And um, I said, you know, I remember back then saying, man, I'm tired. New York is really wearing me out. I'm going to go start fresh somewhere. 
I'm about to graduate next year. I'm going to clean up my act. Well, we all know what happened, right? I got over to France, and it was on. And I lived with uh, another crazy 18-year-old French French student, and we lived with a family where there was a divorcee and her 11-year-old son. And so, you know, we just we just had the time of our lives. And Nantes is. Um, it's a it's a beautiful town, but I went there because really they didn't speak much English. So I thought I'd really get to learn my French, which was really a good idea because let me tell you, drinking is a great lubricant when you're trying to like learn a foreign language. So I, I had a great time over there. Um, my junior, I ended up uh, backpacking through Europe that summer, and I remember it was uh, 1984. So it was the punk rock stage. So I had like 300 bucks to get me through Europe for three months. So my first stop was Amsterdam to load up for my big trip. And then uh, my second stop was London. And I got my hair done with the, like the, the rest of the money in London. And I remember it was like, you know, that I got, had it like shaved up this side and it was hot pink with like big white shoots coming out the front. And um, and anyway, it was crazy. And then I had no money to travel. But you know what? I did for like three months. And everywhere we went, we met party people. I mean, it was crazy. I look at I look back. I'm like, how does that happen? But people just bought me drinks, you know, put us up. It was me and two of my girlfriends. And we just had the time of our lives. I mean, it was really fun. A lot of times people in AA will be like, Jane, uh, you just think you were having the time of your life. It's like, no, I was having the time of my life. I, I, it was really fun. So um, so then I got back to New York senior year. Once again, I'm going to change. I'm really going to crack down. It was it just we all know what happened. It just it's a, a progressive disease. And um, and I, again, lucked out uh, because I landed a job teaching high school. And um, I so I taught English and French at, um, in a high school. Actually, um, somebody here knows the high school. One, it was public school for two years and then an all boys Catholic high school for a year. And I was living in Hoboken, New Jersey at the time, which is right across from New York. And it was basically a bunch of single people that were working in the city. And um, it was just another big, it was, it was on. I mean, it was just slowly but surely, all the lines that I said I would never cross, I just started crossing, you know. Um, I'm talking about, like, you know, my morals. You know, I, I had a, a, an affair with a married man. You know, I... Um, I had one night stands, you know, you know, and it was really kind of sad because the um, I know, you know, the the one night stand part was like really painful for me. But it showed that, like, I was just totally rebelling against the, the way that I was raised. You know, um, I always chose drinking men. And it was really weird because it was really bad, semi consensual hookups, you know, um, and it was I was really incapable of um, of having any dignity, and um, and I would wake up in a haze, and then because of the guilt, I would just start it all over again. You know, it was just it turned into this vicious cycle. The drinking just made all my immoral actions just bearable, and um, so anyway, uh, that was where I was at then. And after three years, I was like, I got to get out of here. I am, I, you know, I got to change. By this time, my family wanted nothing to do with me. I had embarrassed them one too many times at family weddings or family gatherings. Um, I guess the best way to say what my personality was like, like I, I wanted to be outrageous. I always wanted to, you know, like I was very gregarious and, you know, my personality was always very upbeat and stuff, but I wanted to push it to the limits. I wanted to go to the other side of that. I wanted to be outrageous, obnoxious crazy, you give me a dare and I will definitely take you up on it kind of gal. And so it was like that adrenaline rush thing was also um, something that I got very high on and uh, and made me very sick. So so anyway, a friend of mine said, you know, Jane, uh, I have a friend, this guy that I actually taught high school with said, I know somebody that um, took a year sabbatical and went over and taught in Japan. And I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. I heard that, you know, 
if you get caught with like a joint in Japan, you go to prison for something like seven years or something. So maybe that would be a great place to start fresh. So let me. So anyway, so I remember I went for the interview. The guy was interviewing in like New York, Chicago, Miami, L.A., whatever. So I went on the interview, and um, it was in uh, it was in a hotel room, and it was this really good-looking English guy answered the door. So I had the interview, and I said to him, "Hey, have you been out in Manhattan at all?" And he's like, "No, I've been interviewing all weekend." So we went out, got slammed, went back to the hotel room. I got the job. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> and um, and two weeks later, I was on a plane to Japan. And I remember, um, you know, the guy sitting next to me was like, "Wow, that's pretty. You got some moxie. Uh, do you know how to speak Japanese even?" And I was like, "Yeah, I know how to say Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto." And that's about it. But that worked, you know. Domo Arigato worked. Whatever. So I went to Japan and, um, you know, again, went with every intention of starting fresh and getting serious about life. And I worked for um, Time Life and I taught Japanese business men predominantly because that's what it was back in the 80s. Um, and I had to move into their training center with them. I worked for Toyota you know, Mitsubishi, Nissan, uh, Nippon Denso, and I would move into their training centers and live with them for a month. So they had to, you know, really get immersed in English before they were being shipped overseas. Well, you know, they were nervous as heck because the Japanese lifestyle is very regimented. They were so happy when they saw, like, you know, I think I was 25 at the time, bebop into the room and be like, hey, you know, we're going to be teaching, I'm going to be teaching you eight hours a day, you know, and we'll have fun and whatever. Well, that entailed also every night drinking. I mean, because they, for them, it was like a vacation. And let me tell you, those Japanese dudes can drink. And so it, that was all part of the cultural experience. And, you know, and, you know, we, it was, it just was crazy. And um, so my drinking really escalated when I was over there. And, of course, I thought, oh, my family will really miss me and love me and want me to come home. Well, they were so relieved that I was gone and wouldn't even take phone calls when I would call. They, uh, they knew, too, Japanese time. It was like 5 in the morning. It would be a big mistake to answer Jane's call at that time. But, but anyway, um, to make a long story short, things just really started getting bad over there. I thought I was having a good time, but that's when I started to drink daily, and that's when I definitely know that I crossed the line from, you know, from good time, Jane, into I really need this drink to stop shaking in the mornings, and I really need this drink to function, and it almost became like that's when I started wearing this mask, you know, of like, yeah, I'm good time, Jane, you know, whatever. But um, but anyway, I remember, just to give you an indication, I always love sharing this because I think it puts it in a nutshell. One of my best friends is in London, and I went to see her a couple of years ago, and she had a diary, and she literally cut this page out of her diary to give to me. And it said, my friend Jane decided to cut back on her drinking, which means she didn't drink for lunch on Thursday. And so that's how bad things started getting. And so I, I stayed for three years. And um, again, all the other things that surrounded my drinking just you know, continued to spiral downward. And I said, all right, I got to get it together and I'm going to move back. And I'm, I'm, I'm pushing 30 now. I need to, like, find the right guy and get married and have kids and have the family um, you know, and I was always really torn about that because the way that my mother raised me was the old school. That's like what you have to do to be happy. But there was always that that gypsy soul in me that wanted to see the world. And and in a way, I rationalized it by saying, I just got to sow my wild oats and get this all out of my system. And and when I was coming back from Japan, I thought, you know, OK, I've done that. I'm ready. So I moved back to New York and um and what can I say? Things just continued to get bad. Um, I got my first DUI. Um, I, I thought that I would get a job in New York making a lot of money, being that I spoke some Japanese. And, you know, and instead I got, like, glorified secretarial positions. And everything was just, I was miserable, and I was depressed, and I would drink. And um, so the long and short of it is, 
after I got my first DUI, my my mother disowned me because of a, a, a big altercation that we had. And a friend of mine had um, a restaurant down in the Florida Keys. So he said, you know, Jane, why don't you just move down here? And uh, can you imagine, like, I had envisions of, like, yeah, I'm going to start a clean slate down in the Florida Keys. <laughs> but that's really what I thought. And when I went down to the Florida Keys, that's when I, that's when I met my hell. That's when everything just started to crumble. Um, that's when um, I was drinking to, to, to just get by. The other stuff also just started. The stuff that I used to snort, I started to smoke. Um, all, the, all the terrible things that you can imagine. And the crashes were just horrific. Horrific. Um, I was sat, couch surfing. I mean, it was, things were bad. And I had this really quick uh, moment of clarity one time, and I remember I, I must have weighed like 110 pounds, and I was like, I'm going to die. I am definitely going to die if I don't get it together. And so I called a cousin in Fort Lauderdale, and I moved up there. But but let me tell you, the Keys represents for me that um, that demoralization that the big book talks about. You know, I did stuff down there that I never thought I would do, and I am so ashamed of it, and I'm so, I was just, I just didn't care. I, I didn't have the courage to kill myself, but I thought that I would go down in flames, you know, just partying myself, partying myself to, um, to death. Anyway, um, fast forward, I met a guy, met a great guy. Um, he actually... Um, lived in uh, Europe at the time, and he was really smart, but he was had an adventuresome spirit like I did, and um, and we started this this relationship, and this and I was in Fort Lauderdale, and I started to get my life kind of back. I started to get back on my feet, started to get things together. Um, I I don't know how after a, um, a period of of uh, drinking solidly, I. Friends mentioned AA, but it never, it was like, man, I could quit any time I want to, you know. But I couldn't, and I knew that. But I wasn't going to lower myself to go to a 12-step program kind of thing. I had it. I got it. And um, and so I, I limited my drinking to nights, and weekends, of course, were blowouts. And um, so, but this guy, was, he didn't realize how bad my problem was, and we um, we ended up having a great time. And this one weekend, he wanted to go down to the Keys because he had like an adventure tour program, um, like he did X adventure tours in Europe. So he, you know, things like bicycling through Europe, mountain climbing, glacier climbing, whatever. He was a great guy. So he wanted to go down to the Keys to check out the water sports. So anyway, we go to the Keys and we're we're going down. Um, we're on our way down to you know the area, and I was kind of you know nervous because that's where I feel like I had hit my bottom. And um, first tiki bar that we hit, boom, we went in and had a drink, and we proceeded down every tiki bar we hit down to Marathon. You know, we went in and and um, had had a drink and. Of course, by the time we got to Marathon, we were wasted, we were dancing, we were, you know, having fun, partying. And um, there was, when it got later, it was like 2 in the morning, um, there was this place that earlier we had gone to watch the sun go down. And I said, why don't we go back and watch the sun come up at that beautiful spot? And it was the old Seven Mile Bridge. And um, they had actually just blown that bridge up for that movie True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And um, and I didn't know that at the time, but all I remember seeing was this sign that said, Authorized Vehicles Only. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> we're a vehicle. Let's go down. So um, so we, we were cruising down, and I was driving, and I was going, you know, I have no idea how fast I was going, but it was just a regular bridge. And I just remember going around this little curb, and the next thing I felt was just like, it was almost like an explosion. And, um, and this huge crack of, um, of thunder and this bolt of lightning went through my whole body. And I had crashed into the cement abutment. Like on the other side of that cement wall was the water. And I just remember going, oh, my God, Max, where did that come from? Where did it, how did this happen? Oh, my God. 
And I remember going down and reaching my ankle, and I felt the bones in my ankle. I picked my hand up, and there was just blood dripping off of it. And I was, like, freaking out, like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? How did this happen? And I remember looking over at Max, and he was just still. And I was like, oh, great. He hit his head or something, and, you know, he's not here to help, you know, figure out how to get out of this. And it didn't take long before I realized that he wasn't breathing and that he was dead. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, how is anyone going to understand how this happened? Everyone's going to hate me. What about his family? What about my family? How am I going to live with myself? How is anyone ever going to forgive me? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? So anyway, it seemed like hours before those blue lights showed up and it was this police officer and again I'll never forget this police officer and he was just so you know hang in there hang in there we got you we got you and I just couldn't believe he wasn't like you're nothing but a piece of crap drunk driver who killed someone you know And later on, actually, I talked to that police officer at one of the hearings, and he said he had a spiritual experience that night because he said he usually just cruises right straight down the highway. And he said some power in him or something said, you need to go down that road. And he literally backed his car up on the highway and went down that road. And when he found what he found there, he just couldn't believe it. He said that definitely an angel or spirit or God led him to go down that road. And I definitely was on my last breath. Every breath that I took was a conscious effort at that time. Because <laughs> my, my, lung, my lung was punctured and, you know, and I, I just remember Catholics will relate. I remember saying my act of contrition. And I remember, you know, just asking God to please forgive me for all my sins and have mercy on my soul and all that. So anyway, I got heliported. I hate this part, so I have to, like, I would just want to cruise past it really quick. So, um, so anyway, um, I, I made it down to, um, the University of Miami and, um, the next thing I knew, I, I looked up and I saw my dad, and he was just looking down at me. I'll never forget the look on his face. And um, I remember when I, the first words that I said when I got off the respirator were like, Dad, it didn't happen because I was drinking. You know, talk about denial. Actually, delusion, that's freaking delusional. But that's how sick I was. So anyway, again, I'm gonna fast forward. Um, I uh, I ended up breaking my neck at C1, C2, which is the same fracture that Christopher Reeve had. So literally, it is a miracle that I'm standing before you today. You know, a third of the people that sustain that fracture die instantly. A third of the people are paralyzed. And a third of the people are brain damaged, you know, and, you know, I'm standing here. So there's definitely a reason. But anyway, um, I, I also um, need to just get past this part really quick. Um, I knew uh, pretty soon. I was in the hospital from uh, November until April. And then I knew that, um, you know, that there was legal stuff coming down the pike. And I should tell you that it wasn't my first DUI. It wasn't my second DUI. It was my third one. There was another one in the middle there. So I knew I was going to prison. And I deserved to go to prison. And so anyway, um, when I got out of the hospital... 
I was let out on my own recognizance before I had my trial date. And um, and that's when I first started going to my AA meetings. That's what the judge said. The only time you can get leave the house is to go to a meeting or to go to your physical therapy. So that group, it was in St. Pete Beach, Florida, really saved my life. I mean, I don't know what I would have done without them. But I remember going to my first meeting and... I was like on a walker and I had the Philadelphia neck brace on and every step I had to put like, you know, my weight on because I also smashed my my left pelvis and my right ankle was severed. So I had to I'm lucky I have a foot. They sewed my foot back on, but it was really hard. And those people, when I walked through that door, just embraced me and loved me like a mother loves their child, you know, and they said stuff to me like. Oh, there, but for the grace of God, go I. You should, all the, you should see some of the stuff that I did when I was drinking. Mothers would tell me they drove with their kids in the car and blackouts. You know, people told me they did some of the same terrible things that I did when I was using. And it just kind of made me feel better. <laughs> I don't know. It made me feel better that other people were as messed up as I was. And and then they and they took me to my physical therapy appointments and they and they tried to make me laugh and, you know, I'll never forget that group. And and um, I'd like to say that I stayed sober after the crash, and I went to those meetings every day, but I did drink about three more times, and I smoked some more pot a couple of times. And um, my last use I was an all-out blowout the week before. And I'm so ashamed to say this because you would think that that would, be, would have been my bottom, right? But... Um, but, man, the pain was just so intense. I would have done anything to escape it. So my last use was September 24th, and I got um, sentenced to prison on October 2nd. And September 24th was the whole kit and caboodle, man. It was it was drinking. It was drugs. It was a one-night stand with some dude who wrestled alligators in the Everglades. I mean, and that was like, that was like, the bottom that was the bottom I remember the next day I was like I can never ever ever feel this low again because also all the other stuff just tumbled upon it was like I was like laying in a hole and the dirt was just being buried on top of me thrown on top of me so all right so I got sentenced to five years in prison ten years probation and uh, really quickly one of my biggest resentments right now is that I didn't write orange is the new black I really missed that boat. And um, and prison was one of the best experiences of my life. I mean, it saved my life, really. Every day was an atrocity, don't get me wrong, but I really needed it. I really needed it. I would be dead right now if I didn't if I didn't go to prison. You know, sometimes that when sometimes we're just not going to change until the pain gets strong enough. And um when I went to prison, uh, I was, of course, I went through the gamut of emotions. I was resentful. I was like, what, five years? How am I going to do this? Oh, my God. When I, I remember the moment they first handed me, like, the uniform. I was like, I have to wear this for five years? I mean, just, but you know what? I was also, like, numb because I didn't care. You know, because of me, a precious life was no longer on the earth, whatever. I, I didn't plead uh, guilt. I didn't plead not guilty, which my attorney initially wanted me to do because that road should have been blocked off. I was like, hell no, I'm guilty as hell. Let's just get on with it. Let's get sensed. And I did get that much out of the program. That then the, the main thing is honesty. I want to be able to sleep with myself at night. So yeah, I'm guilty. Let's get on with with the sentence, you know. So um, so anyway, I you know prison was. Um, I met some of the finest women that I've ever met in my life in there, but I really needed that time to go on like this mining expedition and find out who I really was. I really had no idea who I was anymore, you know. Um, prison was the one place where, you know, I couldn't run. I couldn't hide behind that my social mask. I couldn't be distracted by other things. I really needed to, to really get down and dirty, and I really needed to get into a program of recovery. And I read all sorts of spiritual books. My, my first sponsor stayed my sponsor in prison. Um, and for anybody who brings in the meetings into prisons and stuff, 
Let me tell you something. God bless you because I looked forward to that. Those women were the ones that gave me hope when they shared what they had to share and they had smiles on their face and they were beautiful and loving. And my God, don't they have better things to do than to come into prison? And and I mean, it just blew me away. And they were really instrumental really quickly. When I got the day I got out of prison, I, um, you know, first stop was the mole to get my hair dyed, get that gray out of my hair. Second one was um, was to go to my AA meeting, and guess what? Those girls were at that meeting. They were like, "Oh my god!" And I was like, "Oh my god!" They're like, "When did you get out?" I was like, "Today." They were like, "No!" And so that, of course, became, was a sign. All those little signs too, in early sobriety, that you know got me hooked. Like, "Oh my god!" What are the chances of that? That became my home group, and it's still my home group today. And um, and those women are still my friends today. Um, but anyway, um, enough about um, prison. I know there's tons more I can go on about, but but I um, I grew to really love my time in there, and I used it wisely, and I was able to help a lot of women in there. Um, I, I worked for the GED. I helped to prepare women for their GEDs, and um, yeah, I just did a lot of a lot of cool stuff when I was in there. I made it productive, and again, it saved my life. So, um, so what I want to just say, like, I prefer not to stare at the past, just to glance at it every now and again as a, as a reminder. But, um, and I also feel like the big book says on page 86, but we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. So even in a place like prison, I really tried to, to work the action part of the program, you know. Every day I would look internally and make my review. I would ask for God's forgiveness whenever I fell short. And I would always think, ask God to put in my mind what corrective measures needed to be taken. You know, um, I'm so grateful that I had the program to work on while I was in while I was in prison. Um, I thought that now I would like for any newcomers or even people, old timers that are here and maybe feeling like, you know, you're kind of a little complacent right now. Bear with me because I have a couple more minutes. I thought um, we would I would share with how I went through the 12 step program just very briefly, um, because, you know, when I saw that I was speaking at like a a convention that was um, so support. Well, that ran a treatment center, I thought, let me let me think about what I want to say with with the 12 steps. So, um, first of all, as I live my life today, isn't it reassuring to know that if you stumble on your path, the answer is only 12 steps away? I love that saying, and it's so true. Everything you need to know is in that big book. Everything, every answer to any question you have. And at first I was like, yeah, right. But believe me, it, it's ended up being true. But one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Take a walk down memory lane. Think about what that step meant to you in the beginning. You know, for me, I had to admit that I was licked. I was beat. I had not an ounce of fight left in me. Um, I felt utterly humiliated, uh, defeated, and um the, you know, all of our bottoms are different. The depth of all of our bottoms are different. But the main thing is that we all decided to surrender, right? Um, it's an honest program is what I kept hearing at the beginning. And that was the biggest change that I had to make. I decided that I was going to live my life 100% honestly. And that wasn't easy for an alcoholic like me. But I did, and um, and I'm so glad. And I needed to also stop rationalizing, drop the mask, stop making excuses, and admit that my life was unmanageable, right? Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. When I first, you know, at first, I was mad at God. I was disappointed in God. And after a lot of soul-searching, I realized that the only reason that I was mad at God was because things weren't working out my way. And I realized that it was only because I kept placing my will between me and God that things would go awry. And um, one of the uh, pivotal moments for me was actually in prison. 
And it was a Catholic priest, just like the women that would come in. This priest came to say Mass once a month. And I remember it was Easter week. And, um, and I went, so I went to confession. And I remember saying, you know, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. And whatever, I told him my sins. And, um, and when I looked up at him, he actually has, he, he kind of was like, a, well, he was a young priest. He kind of looked like Jesus, actually. And his chin was trembling. And I was like, oh, oh look, he's crying, you know. And then I realized he was crying. And he, and he, and he's like, what? And he said, because every time you come in here, it's the same sin over and 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 over so do me a favor. Don't even bother coming to Mass anymore until you really forgive yourself. And this isn't about self-forgiveness. This is a program of redemption. You need to redeem yourself right now. And I was just like, whoa. But that really was a changing point for me. You know, I'll never forget that. And um, and then, you know, that's when I started to come to believe and I started to have an open mind that priest really, what, what he said, you know, is still in my heart today. Um, and also with step two, I, I really started opening my ears to how other people in the program started to burst through their self-deceptions. And also those little God things that we all know, like I shared one before, like how, this is way this is way too crazy. This is, has to be a sign from God. Number three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Isn't that funny? It was only when I turned it over that I really felt that spiritual freedom. I felt free inside prison walls, you know. And, um, and, and my sponsor was like, you know what? You don't have to do it perfectly. You don't have to, like, turn it over and think that, you know, you're helpless. Just just turn it over and let God guide your life and see what happens and realize that it's a gentle God that loves you and has your best interests at heart. Um, and again, it was just so another another plausible moment was when I when I realized that um, that God didn't cause my suffering. It was me whenever I put myself in the role of God. Step four made a searching and for uh, moral fearless inventory. You know what? I did that made a. I'm sorry, made a searching and moral inventory of ourselves. I made, I did that while I was in prison because I really didn't have much else to do most of the time. So I did a really thorough one. And guess what? Another Catholic priest after Mass, one day after Mass, said, uh, Ladies, I just want to tell you I am an alcoholic in recovery, and the warden just gave me permission to do fifth steps with, with you women. And I was just like, and he was from New Jersey. And I was just like, what? This is so wild. So... I signed up, and um, I thought, this is pretty cool. I can get confession and a good fifth step. Kill two birds with one stone. Well, I sat with that priest for three and a half hours, and he cried, and I cried, and guess what? He's still one of my best friends today. And um, he actually, one time when he went to New Jersey, because this was all in Florida, went to visit my family because my mom and I didn't talk for, you know, five years after the, all the prison stuff. So... Anyway, again, I, I'm forever grateful to him. And um, I asked him today, I'm like, do you remember any of the stuff that I told you? He's like, I asked God to forgive, to take all those thoughts out of my mind right after I leave it. Um, but again, I really did. I had to go on that mining expedition that I talked about earlier. Um, and my sponsor told me, you know, when you write that stuff down, don't only write down the good stuff, the bad stuff, write the good stuff down, too, you know. And and then the fifth step, you know, um, admit to ourselves, uh, uh, to God, to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. This is all about humility and honesty and breaking through those self-deceptions once again. And uh, after a good fifth step, I felt so free. I felt like less of a freak and more of a member of the human race, which is what it's all about. It's easy. 
One of the books that I love is The Spirituality of Imperfection. I'm not okay. You're not okay. But that's okay. You know, I mean, it's it's just so liberating. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. This, for me, is a slow and a gradual process. You know, it doesn't have to be boom and they all magically appear. A lot of it is uh, happens unconsciously, too. If we live the principles of the program, doesn't this just happen automatically over time? You know, um, seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Humbly is the key word for me there. And acquiring the humility necessary to do this step is the business of the first six steps. You know, perhaps maybe we're not willing to give it up. We're not humble enough yet. We're not, you know, whatever. But as long as we keep doing the footwork, take it easy, man. You know, you don't have to get all these steps perfectly the, the first time. The main thing is watch out for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And as I mentioned to you before, resentment is one that I still struggle with a lot. Um, and um, and I, another great nun who, who speaks, I don't know if anyone's ever seen Sister Maurice, she gave me this to help out with my resentments. And this is a prayer that I say. God, help me to look with soft eyes upon all who are part of my days. Break through the barriers of my scrutinizing views. Transform my inner landscapes into a peaceful place of acceptance. Pull back my projections and criticisms. Replace my mean measurements and my biased expectations with an openness that allows others just to be. Cleanse me of everything that clouds my perceptions and blocks the sunlight of your spirit. I love that prayer. Very quickly, eight, made a list of amends. All right, this is the action part of the program that we all know, know about. This is our so, plain and simply, our social house cleaning. Uh, nine, made direct amends. A lack of willingness will always prevent us from growth. So as long as you are willing to make those amends and you do it where you know you need to do it, then you're growing. Uh, ten, Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. This is the first of the three steps of maintenance, sustenance, and growth. Um, I think if we uh, do the next three steps, I'll go through them really quick because I know we're running out of time. Sought through prayer and meditation to remove our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I believe if we're living our lives right, we're living our prayer. Um, it, our lives are dynamic and fluid, uh, fluid, and I, I really feel like um, everybody, you know, the, the program tells us to do those things, um, you know, pray for God's will and the power to carry them out. That's it. But we also, you know, pray for other things like the serenity prayer. I still say the prayers of my youth. I still say please. I still say thank you. You know, the the thing is that we have that contact. Um, I love con- retreats, conventions, you know, th- those kind of things, too. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs, right? Um, we're here to love and the, to care for uh, for other people that are in the program, accept others as they are, carry the message in order to, to help ourselves grow and practice the principles in all our affairs. That's it. To me, that's like the 12 steps in a nutshell. It's simple. It really is. You know, sometimes it's not easy, but certainly simple and hand, and we can all handle it. And all of us have to do this time and time again. So anyway, I just um, want to end, too, by saying that it's never too late to be the person that you were meant to be. You know, right now, um, my life today is incredible. Um, just really quickly to tell you where I'm at today. Um, when I got out of prison, I, I got I was lucky to get a housekeeping job at a hotel. Then I worked my way up to working at the front desk. That was the best job I ever had. I did that. I applied for grad school to go back to become a, a social worker because I really wanted to dedicate my, my the rest of my life to love and service. So I tried getting into I ended up in Tallahassee, Florida. So I said, well, Florida State University is here. Let me apply. I got turned down by the police department there, not once, not twice, but I got accepted on the third time. My letter handed, ended up in the hands of the assistant dean. I was honest. I was always honest, by the way, about what happened to me. 
um, that, that's working on his program. I would look at people in the eyes and I would say, where would any of us be without forgiveness? Where would any of us be without a second chance? Please give me a second chance. I won't let you down. And let me tell you, I had angels at every turn on my journey, and they were willing to give me a second chance. Um, so I worked. Um, I worked at the. Um, I, I worked, and uh, I don't know how I did it. I, I kind of worked like I partied, I guess. You know, I would. Be, I lost my license for life, um, and so I had to, you know, walk or take uh, a bus or bike to the hotel. From seven to three, and then from five to nine, I would go to school, and I did that for two years straight. I was just on this mad rush to rebuild my life, and um, and and then uh, I started my first job, and I also had to get a whole bunch of waivers by the Department of Children and Families to even work at psychiatric hospitals. But my first job was at a psychiatric hospital on a crisis intervention unit, and also working in a detox. So, and. For those of you who um, have ever had mandated AA meetings, guess what mine was? I had to go to an AA meeting every day for 10 years, for 10 years. I mean, that's what my judge said. It was unbelievable. Even my probation officer was like, I have never seen this before. So I had to do all of that. And believe me, again, an honest program. I went to a meeting every day. I got an apartment on the, like a couple blocks away from the AA meeting so I could walk to one every day. If I couldn't go to a meeting that day, I met somebody and had a meeting at a coffee shop. Or I got permission from my probation officer to listen to a tape and then tell him about the tape. But I always did it. I always did it. And after five years, I went before a judge again and said, ten, ten, you know, ten years every day? She reduced it to five times a week. So the last five years was five times a week. But you know what? I did it because it was better than sitting on a prison bunk, you know. And um, and then the, all these great things started happening. I got a job at, uh, you know, the job that I was just talking to at Florida State University. They asked me if I wanted to be an adjunct professor to teach chemical dependency, uh, which, of course, is my specialty area. So I started doing that. And then they, you know, in the beginning, they told me I would never teach again. And then the great, this is unbelievable. I was actually in Houston with my older brother, whose 14-year-old son was uh, in a rehab. We were all there to just support him. I got a call from the dean at Florida State University wanting to know if I was interested in becoming a full-time faculty member. So currently, I'm an associate professor at the College of Social Work at Florida State University. If that isn't a miracle, you know, and then thank you. And, and I, I'm obviously not saying it to toot my own horn, but to, to give people hope that, you know what, you can get your life back and it will exceed whatever dreams you had. I also, um, again, not to toot my horn, but the students um, voted me to be professor of the year a couple of years ago. I've been nominated for a university-wide um, teaching awards ever since I started, um, and I've been there for full-time six years now. Um, I also work with a student group um, called To Write Love on Our Arms, which is uh, a lot of students who are in the LGBTQ community who also suffer from um, depression or substance abuse. I'm also active in, um, I'm a survivor of breast cancer. That was a trip. I, I made it all through this and then got zapped with breast cancer. So I work for Reach to Recovery, which is a um, telephone line that works with women who um, have recently been diagnosed to give them support. So for me, service work isn't just limited to AA. Of course, it's important in AA, but man, there are so many service opportunities out there. It's just, it's just important that you tap into them and you live that life of helping others and giving to others. Um, I also just, uh, as, I, as I bring this to a close, um, I, I love this, and I just wanted to read it. If we practice the principles in all our affairs, great things are going to happen. Uh, one of the greatest things that's going on in my life right now is that 51, I fell in love for the first time. And I know I would want to hear that if I didn't have luck and love and was in this audience right now. But I have found the most, I'm going to start crying, he's the most incredible man. 
like, I can't believe this is happening to me at this age. But um, we have this incredible, he, he's tapped into the program. You know, um, he's been sober for 31 years. I never met anyone who loves this program more than him. He sponsors tons of guys in the Chicago area. He's, you know, he he lit, he walks the walk, man. He does it. Like I, I gotta really bump up my game. <laughs> but um, but he's incredible. And um, we we just went on this great trip this summer to Spain and Portugal. And um, I've never been married. I don't have any kids. I've never even lived with anyone. And um, this is my first time speaking with my beautiful new ring. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and and for the last two days, he's been in a U-Haul, and he's pulling into my driveway probably right about now. Woo! <laughs> And, um, you know, it's just, I mean, this program, none of this would be possible without this program is what I'm what I'm trying to say. Um, So if you practice the principles in all your affairs, these things are promised. A new life will be given to you. You'll find hope instead of desperation, faith instead of despair, courage instead of fear, peace of mind instead of confusion, self-respect instead of self-contempt. Self-confidence instead of uh, instead of that helpless feeling. Gain the respect of others instead of their pity and contempt. You'll have a clean conscience instead of guilt. Real relationships instead of loneliness. Um, I believe that all of you have the best days of your lives ahead of you. Um, I, I want to thank everyone for being here this weekend. And in closing, I just want to... Uh, read the 12-step prayer, my favorite one. Dear God, my spiritual awakening continues to unfold. The help I have received I shall pass on and give to others, both in and out of the fellowship. For this opportunity, I am grateful. I pray most humbly to continue walking day by day on the road of spiritual progress. I pray for the inner strength and wisdom to practice the principles of this way of life In all I say and do, I need you, my friends, my friends in recovery, and I need this program every hour of every day. This is a better way of life. Thank you all. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.